0: Well, beloved listeners, the pub has been part of Australia's social and uh, cultural history since the early days of uh, colonial settlement. And uh, with the pub comes, yes, alcohol. And uh, while the consumption of alcohol does not always end with uh, good outcomes for the drinker or those around them, many good things have come out of a pub Gathering The pub has produced a space or provided a space for people to find friends, find love, find food and latterly music, to discuss ideas and think big. And uh, for some of our history, they have been a critical place to imagine a better and fairer Australia. Now, to discuss the role of pubs and alcohol in our political history... I am delighted to welcome to the first live, late-night live for the year, social historian Alex Etling. Alex is in our Melbourne studio. He has edited a collection of essays on the connection between politics and pubs with colleague Ian McIntyre, Mac- Mac- and we were hoping to have Ian in the studio as well today, but sadly, he cannot join us. All the best, Ian. And... I'm delighted to be sharing the studio in Sydney with none other than the formidable Wendy Bacon. Uh, She's here to discuss her contribution to the book. Wendy, of course, journalist extraordinaire, academic and lifelong activist. The book, which I will hold up to the microphone in traditional LNL fashion so you can all see the cover, is uh, knocking... The Top Off, A uh, People's History of Alcohol in Australia, published by Intervention. Seems an appropriate name for the publisher. Alex, why is the pub worthy of examining its uh, contribution to political life at such considerable length? Because this is a whopper of a book.
1: Well it's where life happens, you know. It's the messy parts of social life that are often unspoken. Um so much a part of the real story of how history is made is those sort of behind the scenes moments in in pubs and um you know, there's so many famous moments in Australian history that are touched by liquor, you know, Ned Kelly's Last Stand was was at public in Ann Jones's Glen Rowan Hotel and alcohol's been used as uh, means of exercising social control. So the Rum Rebellion is an example of that when Australia was briefly a military dictatorship. You've got the, the catalyst of the Eureka Rebellion was the murder of a man outside a pub at the Bentleys Hotel. So, you know, pub politics makes for a very effervescent sort of history. It, it fizzes with all sorts of possibilities. And, you know, in extreme cases, it, it's death, but it's also life, it's love, it's conflict, it's all sorts of connecting and breaking up. So, you know, just writing this book and gathering all the contributions, it was a fascinating exercise to explore a in history, when you look at it, so sort of focusing on one one commodity and something so contradictory and vexing as alcohol, and using that as a way to look at the totality of how a society works, and also Vegemite has its story entwined with beer, so there's plenty to talk about.
0: <laughs> Alex, are you a pub habitué?
1: I am. I think there must have been a certain romance attached to it. And, um, you know, so much of my early childhood was, well, being dragged around pubs by by my mum. But then when I was a teenager going to see, uh, you know, bands, sort of punk bands in pubs. So, yeah, a large part of my socialisation, kind of learning how to operate as an adult and um, learning some hard lessons along the way about how to how to socialise and how to, you know, operate in a social context.
0: I was raised by my uh, grandparents on a little farm outside Melbourne and uh, they used to, or my grandmother used to drag me up to the Harper Varen Hotel and while she was in the ladies' lounge and later I want to discuss this sort of sexual apartheid that applied to pubs with women but it gave me such a lifelong dislike for hotels that I'm virtually a teetotaler but you have to forgive me this character failing Alex. Now the early representations of colonial life in Australia have alcohol at the heart of them but were the early settlers as drunk as uh, we think they were?
1: Well, it's contested and some have claimed that it was the most amount of alcohol drunk anywhere in human history, that early period, and others have said it was just about the same as in Britain, but clearly... People didn't want to be in this new in this new place, so it stands to reason that you know there were quite a lot of unhappy people, and there was a lot of drinking and um, emerging out of you know the economic system in Australia. Um, did,
0: did, was- a, did Australian pub culture derive from the English pub?
1: It did well. You can go back all the way to to the Roman taverns along the road network. So when 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 Roman authority left, the alehouses sprung up, and that was basically small scale farmers brewing up you know what was left of their stock, and then inviting the neighbours around to gossip in the pubs and arrange sort of mutual aid. There was no welfare system for workers at that stage, so those sort of social functions of the pub were were really quite crucial, and uh, that was basically exported wholesale to Australia. And um, yeah, and then basically a lot of uh, contestation, and bargaining over how alcohol was used, basically became a form of currency. And um, people you know wanted to have more leisure time. So clearly alcohol was the symbol for that. And um, you had very early forms of collective action to try to get more more grog, (laughs) you know, basically.
0: Well, we've got plenty of time to discuss that now. You also make the point in the book that in the way there was a parallel to the pub culture in the tea house, another place where people could get together.
1: Yeah, I think that... There's a desire for people to come together, to want to meet and, you know, particularly to share grievances. And, um, you know, if you've got a, a couple of drinks in hand, it will start to flow. So well, tea, I think...
0: Tea doesn't do that, That does not
1: No. So I, I think that in different cultures there would be, you know, like uh, in, in non-drinking cultures, they could do that around tea houses or... Uh, hooker bars or any sort of thing like that. So in Australia, it just so happens that we inherited that that uh, that uh, pub culture from Britain.
0: I'm talking to Alex, who is recovering from COVID. Glad you're with us. Uh, from the earliest days, uh, pubs have been the place for political organisation, the start of the union movement, perchance.
1: Yeah, going back as far as in you know, the 1850s, you had unions meeting in pubs to hatch uh, plans like the eight-hour day. They wanted to have uh, shorter working hours. And, um, yeah, that was a campaign that was won, but they had to actually keep going back to they, – they won it, but they kept losing it. <laughs> so part of, um, part of the early union was commemorating – those wins, so they would actually go on marches and return to the pubs where they used to organise um, the the unions. Um, you know, there was no uh, trades halls back then, so there was um, yeah a need for free meeting space and perhaps to organise under the cover of um, having another reason to be there. So pubs were perfect for that.
0: Alex, as a lifelong member of the temperance movement, I must ask about the impact of that fine group of stalwarts.
1: Yeah, probably one of the most impactful social movements in Australian history. Um, They succeeded in getting six o'clock closing, which profoundly shaped... Not just drinking culture, but you know the the arts and the whole the whole apparatus of entertainment and leisure that fits on top of that. So, um, yeah, they were derogatory, known as wowzers, but um there were progressive elements to what they were We cover in the book, their very um strong um commitment to Aboriginal rights. And um, yeah, so that's a, it's not all bad. It's sort of a mixed, um, a, a, a mixed outcome. And uh, I, I, yeah, certainly alcohol was a big problem in society. So um, there were different approaches, you know, from all out, uh, wanting to, to ban alcohol to um, just having uh, weaker strength alcohol, changing the hours of operation. So, um, yeah, the temperance movement was particularly strong in the late 1800s and early 20th century.
0: Alex, I learned from your splendid book that uh, the pub was a place of refuge for the maritime unionists. Was that because they didn't have a, a family to go for it to in many ports?
1: Yeah, they were a particularly isolated workforce. Many of them didn't have a happy home to go to, or maybe no home at all. So there was that human need to seek companionship. And a lot of these uh, maritime workers, they basically lived in hotels. The The Mansions Hotel in Cities King's Cross is an example of that. They could stay there for months, but it might end up being lifelong accommodation. And, you know, it was a hard life, hard manual labour. There was, there was plenty of soothing of aches with alcohol because there was no affordable health care at the time. And, um, you know, my favourite story about uh, that period of maritime workers is when they had a quite strong union and were feeling quite confident. And so in the 1950s, they actually made a push at the Harbour View Hotel in Sydney to get some flowers in the front bar because the, the idea was, well, what, we spend so much time here, why, why should we have to live in a dingy pub and uh, so there's a great photo of uh, these burly maritime workers with their flowers in the front bar.
0: I want to go back to the, uh, to the campaign for the eight-hour day. I had a chat with uh, Sean Skelmer last year about the eight-hour day, inculcated or fermented in a hotel.
1: Yeah, they met at, um, you know, it was a national campaign in Melbourne. They met in places like the Belvedere in Fitzroy, at the Clark's Hotel in Collingwood. They, um, yeah, a perfect place to scheme up a way to uh, bring people together and reduce working hours. There was no... um, no one doing them any favours by giving them free meeting place. So, you know, to some extent you go where the people are and uh, people wanted to go to pubs. So that was where um, a lot of union campaigns were were, uh, schemed up until... Uh, unions started to build their own trades halls in the 1870s.
0: Now, Wendy's quietly sitting here sipping at a beer, but uh, before <laughs> we go to her, can you tell me about the beer strikes? They weren't what they sound like.
1: There was a whole wave of these beer strikes in the early 20th century, particularly in WA and the gold fields. And I think they came about because we're in those smaller towns where there could be sort of cartel-like behaviour. It was quite easy to... To um, to pursue, but. Uh, they were more like boycotts than beer strikes, really. They were, you know, it was very tempting for the publican to increase prices. No one was going to stop them. The only people that could stop them were the consumers. So the, my favourite one is in Gualia in, in um, 1915. And they ha- carried out that campaign for three months, refusing to drink. And they'd often have to like travel great distances to other towns to drink or go to miners camps. And um, along the way, they broadened their demands. We want better hygiene in the pub. We want standardised drinking glasses. And and, uh, yeah, they won their campaign. But um, the Gualia Hotel is also particularly interesting because it was a state-run hotel. And that relates to the temperance movement as well. There was a whole period when the idea was disinterested ownership. If you don't have a, a publican out there to make money, then the there'll be a better standard of drinking. People won't be pushed so hard. Um, so, you know, elsewhere in the book we talk about as axe-wielding communities trying to axe beer kegs to stop drinking, but this was one solution was to have the, yeah, the government step in and, and run pubs, run the whole liquor industry. And it was an experiment that didn't last very long in Australia. It lasted a bit longer in the UK, but... Um, yeah, in the case of Gualia, well, if the government was going to demand that beer prices were raised, That wasn't going to be very popular.
0: Now, Wendy is uh, knocking the top off and uh, let's talk about your chapter in the book because you look at the role of pubs and alcohol in the years of the Sydney push. Now, let us remind the listener, particularly the younger listener, what the hell the push was.
2: Most people have probably uh, not heard of the Sydney push, although in its heyday it was known by everyone probably in Sydney, at least by name. Um, look, I didn't actually come to Sydney and get involved with the push until uh, 1967 or like in, you know, around that time. So in researching the book, I really did have to go back to the <laughs> memoirs and back to talking to some of the people older than me, still alive, who are around the push. There's a phrase in the push, um, you move to the other bar, which means you've died. Well, there's (laughs) plenty of people who can remember these days who are thankfully still alive. So the push was really a form, you could say, of Australian bohemianism, but it was actually more than that. Um, It began, its roots go back to uh, Sydney University in the late 1940s and there there was a philosopher called John Anderson who was a realist who had been there already, a Scottish man who'd been there already for uh, several decades and he had a notion of critical inquiry and basically he was anti-moralism, anti-illusions, what we could, anti-religion or critiquing of religion, what we would Call today Bullshit, you know, being able to have a nose for Bullshit, and so he had a very big following. He was very active in Sydney, he wrote loads of letters to the paper, you know, nothing like an academic in an ivory tower. However, his own politics were a moving feast, and so by the late 40s, he'd become a vehement anti-communist. Now, he had originally been a communist to the Trotskyist, and gradually he, he sort of moved. Um, now, Think about the late 40s, there were a whole lot of younger people coming into the university, in this case Sydney University, who... People might be a bit surprised to know that the government was actually trying to boost people and give them incentives, financial incentives, to go to university. So quite a few people who came from socialist, working class backgrounds, uh, less privileged backgrounds. I mean, in the earlier days, basically, if you couldn't pay to go to the university, you couldn't go there. So they ended up at Sydney University. Now... They came from, let's say, what we might call today progressive backgrounds, but they weren't necessarily attracted to the Communist Party. So some of them were for a time and then left after that, a bit like yourself, Philip. So um, they um, they decided, they were, joined the Free Anderson's Free Thought Society, but then they started clashing with them over things like They wanted to have meetings supporting the no case. When the Menzies government wanted to ban the Communists, these young people wanted to support the no case, no ban. They wanted to go to protests and have speakers against Australia's involvement in the Korean War. Now, Anderson was dead against that. So that led to a split and the formation of a small, very small group. They were very small and they split almost immediately themselves. Um, but they were the Sydney Libertarians. Now, at that point, they moved downtown into central Sydney for their drinking away from the university hotels and joined up with other Bohemians who were sort of science fiction people, um, people who were artists. And they originally were at a place called the Lincoln Cafe, very famous in Rose Street. Now there's a little plaque there, nothing more, surrounded by high rise buildings and then eventually they moved to the Tudor Hotel, which was, we could say, the first Sydney push pub. So at the heart of this, you could say, were a small group of people with a certain brand of intellectual ideas, probably as much influenced by anarchism, social anarchism and the Spanish Civil War as by Andersonianism. And then they joined with a whole lot of other people who maybe only partly subscribed to these ideas, but had a lot of fun.
0: This is a very rich brew, and it produces something called critical drinking. Would you explain that to this teetotaler?
2: Well, critical drinking is really just a play on words. So we've got Anderson's notion of critical inquiry. And the whole idea of that was uncompromising critique Of illusions. So that sort of linked with the critique of authoritarian communism. You know, these people were attracted to communism but rejected the idea of um, a powerful Leninist state. Um, So that was the critical inquiry part of it, but it was going to happen in pubs. And wherever you read about the push pubs, and my own memory of it too, I don't, I mean, of course everyone had a midi in their hand or some other form of drink, mainly a midi of beer, but actually most people use the word talking. Everybody was talking. Um, those days you could hear, there wasn't a of sound in the background. So people were discussing one young woman who was a very good friend of mine who died last year, Lingain, uh, left Fort Street High School at the age of 16 rather than sticking at school and went to get a job and was taken by a friend to what was the... Pub, push pub at the time, the Royal George, and in her own memoir describes just walking in there and just seeing this crowd of people all talking, everything from, you might say, sort of pathetic, romantic sort of stuff through to what she saw as very stimulating discussion, and plus a whole lot of parties to go to, sex to be had, and then later on a large amount of folks singing as well. So it was um, the drinking and the talking came together in what was called critical drinking, but it really was only a sort of joke in a way.
0: Alex, let's stay with the theme of uh, critical drinking. As a Melburnian, I uh, have dim memories of the uh, Swanston Family Hotel, which uh, Manning Clark called possibly the best university I have ever attended. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, it was a real hive for all sorts of um, artists, radicals, writers, philosophers. Um, You have, really it was organised by the artist Noel Coonahan and um, his... um, Do you know I've
0: still got a collection of Noel's pictures at home?
1: Beautiful. Um, I'll have them when you don't want (laughs) them, please. Uh, but they, you know, they wanted a place to drink with their friends, and but they had to, they wanted a good deal for it. They were like, we're going to come here and we've got, you know, some are uh, going to spend quite a bit of money over the bar, so they negotiated to have their women friends be able to come into the front bar, which was not allowed at the time. They wanted to be able to get tick over the bar. Not, uh, plenty of artist friends didn't always have a steady flow of money, so you know, they really nurtured a scene there, and um, certainly It was a place where, you know, Labor Party figures and Communist Party figures uh, mixed. So there was a fertile uh, cross-pollination there. But the whole um, modernist art scene was uh, flourishing at that time and various shades of red to pink in in the spheres of politics and art.
2: When the critical thinkers, critical thinkers and drinkers went to Melbourne, that's the pub they went to. That's the pub where they knew they could find their Melbourne friends. There was that link between Sydney and Melbourne. So, um, and also very much as Alex said, applied at the Swanton Family Hotel in Sydney, A pub couldn't become a push pub, so the Tudor or the Royal George had to pass a test before they could become a push pub, and that is they had to agree to serve women in the public bar, and also that the same drink could be taken between all the bars.
0: Now, Wendy, were the push pubs ever the target of Mr Plot?
2: I wouldn't say that police violence at push pubs was a real feature, but definitely um, by the early 60s, when, you know, I think Sydney was beginning to be a bit more radical, beginnings of the New Left were on the rise, certainly they got, the Royal George got, um, Police attention. There's actually a story about Jermaine Greer, and I might just say about Jermaine is that she, Jermaine, uh, being a well-known feminist, anyone who doesn't know, but and a push person. But Jermaine commented, just going back to my point about talking that, and I've shared this view that the logical sort of no bullshit talk of the Sydney Libertarians certainly had a big influence. Anyway, one day Jermaine was in the pub, and uh, a couple of uh, police pushed their way right into the crowd. And this wasn't the only time, but uh, Jermaine did a sort of mimicking thing, like in her, she was a a good actor, and sort of sent them up. And uh, they turned on her and they were going to arrest her. And she walked outside the pub, they followed her, and she managed to talk her way out of being arrested on that day. But on another occasion, there was a, a British academic who'd migrated to Australia called Ken Buckley, who was one of the founders of the Council for Civil Liberties. Now, um, Ken, was, Ken was more of a socialist or a Fabian, you might say, but he he also enjoyed drinking with the push and a lot of people did. I mean, it was not a sec, really sectarian sort of thing. You could join um, in all of this and so Ken used to go down to the Royal George. Now, on one occasion, Ken walked into the pub and uh, was in a group and a Cop walked up and arrested a young person, just literally took them out, took them off in the police wagon. So Ken followed the police wagon to the police station and by the time he got in there, this young teacher he was was there with uh, his solicitor and the police and they were coming to a deal to um, take this young teacher before the court as a labourer the next day because with whatever they were charging him with because otherwise, of course, he could have been sacked for being arrested. Your name was in the paper then if you got arrested. So so that way, and Kim was very, like, Kim was a bit... Lacking an understanding of, I think, perhaps the more vulnerable (laughs) in some ways, even though he did a great job at the Council for Civil Liberties, and he was very frustrated by this. He really felt they shouldn't have done a deal. Later on, there was another very well-known incident that actually led to the founding of the Council for Civil Liberties, when uh, Andre Frankovitz and friends, Jane um, Gardner and others were having a party in King's Cross. And uh, the police raided the place, just walked in and chased one woman into her bedroom and really were very intimidating. And Ken and Jack Gully, actually, who was very senior in ABC News, uh, went to the police station and tried to lay a complaint. And this proved to be extremely difficult. It turned out that um, the person who raided most likely raided because he saw some sexual activity through a window happening from William Street and was worried about interference with his corrupt sex worker activities just a couple of streets away in Darlinghurst. Um, Anyway, through all of that, that was one of the key events that led to the Council for Civil Liberties being formed in Australia. So the police were around. but. Compared to what they were
0: around you at some point. Yeah, they were certainly you around me. You were told to assume the position and were cuffed.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, a little bit later in uh, the early seventies, when I was involved in anti-censorship things, the very anti-censorship campaigns, the very same people who were accepting bribes of sex workers up in Darlinghurst came and kicked in my door in the middle of the night to uh, summons me to court over. Um, anti-censorship activities. So the police were around, but I guess I really want to say that compared to what would have been in a working-class pub in the Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, or let alone the Empress Hotel in Redfern, you know what we experienced was nothing compared to the violence that was happening on a daily basis.
0: Now, Wendy, uh, let's move on to... Uh women questions, I mentioned earlier that uh, apartheid applied, women were in the, the ladies lounge. Tell me about the dynamics of all that.
2: Well, you know, I didn't, when I first went to university, it was still in Melbourne, you know, it was still six o'clock closing. This was in the early sixties. And I think I did go to a few pubs around Carlton, but I was not a regular at hotels. We didn't go to hotels. My main memory is we would because there was not mixed drinking. There might have been exceptions in Melbourne, but generally there was still apartheid. What this apartheid meant is that men had their bar, that was the public bar, and then there was the ladies' lounge. Of course, it still exists today, very weirdly. There are still lounges where people go. And I don't think any longer they're called ladies' lounges. I hope not. But in the ladies' lounge, um, you could be there and you could have a drink, but it just was not the same atmosphere and this was a real um, grudge for women and, as as i said before, the push managed to establish their places where there would be equality in drinking. Well,
0: were women safe at the pubs where the Sydney push met?
2: I personally uh, don't ever, ever remember feeling unsafe. I, nothing, look, that's not to say I don't think there was sexism around the Sydney push. There absolutely was, and there was critique, especially in the 70s, as there was throughout the left. But my main memory of feeling unsafe around a pub was when I was um, 18 and went for summer holiday to... Uh, do what was called silver service waitressing in a major hotel in Mildura. And we had to sleep upstairs in a room with um, outer lock at the back of the hotel. This is now, I'm talking about 19, end of 1964. And I felt very at risk of being raped. And we only lasted, my friend and I only lasted for two days there before we <laughs> hot-footed back to Melbourne. And I also remember feeling very unsafe on trains between Sydney and Melbourne. So. I would say, look, when I say, I didn't feel unsafe, I can't say that there were no women who found the atmosphere intimidating, who may have been harassed, who may have just never gone back again, that's something I can't know, but when I talk to the women who were there in the early 60s and the 1950s, they only talk, and they're very clear about this, about the sense of agency they felt from being able to go into the pub and be on equal terms with men. That was a huge thing.
0: In parenthesis, I should point out that a hat was often passed around when uh, one of the women members needed an abortion.
2: Well, I now, had that experience myself, you know, that um, really back then you could only get um, an abortion in Sydney if you had the cash to pay one of a few select doctors and there was police corruption involved with that too. So if you needed to have an abortion. Basically it depended on a win at the races or money being taken up because the amount of money wasn't necessarily huge. I can't remember the exact sum, but it was way outside any money I would have had. So that was just a feature. And then of course, by the early seventies, all of that suddenly was clamped down upon. And so that's another story, the story of abortion.
0: Alex, another story involves indigenous Australians. Tell me about the significance of the pub in this in this saga
1: the importance of black pubs is probably made clear most when Muhammad Ali came to visit Melbourne. And, you know, he wanted to meet the black people in the city. And he uh, was quickly found out that you have to go to the Builders Arms Hotel. So there he went down Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. And he bumped into the activist Marjorie Thorpe along the way. And he held her baby daughter that was Senator Lydia Thorpe. And he, um, yeah, he met the Aboriginal population at the pub. That was, it was a you know, well known congregating place. If uh, any marginalized community that particularly doesn't have fixed traditions of home, um, those inner city pubs were really crucial. And, um, Uh, with Gary Foley in his, you know, remarkable oral history that he, he provides in the book. He talked about how when the mission system was closing down, the Redfern in Sydney just swelled with Aboriginal people and, you know, there weren't that many recreation options. So, yeah, the pub was where it had to be. And, um... That's where political organising happened. The um, John Newfong, uh, the legendary um, media kind of man of the um, Aboriginal Black Power Movement, he actually described the Empress as the cabinet room of the <laughs> Aboriginal movement.
0: <laughs> and uh, Alex, you, you found a, a remarkable photo of Gough and uh, Vincent uh, Lingiari. Not as well known as the one where Goffer uh, pours sand into Vincent's hands, but tell me briefly about this
1: photograph. It's fascinating. There's just layers of symbolism with this moment. Uh, everyone knows that, that image of the sand through the hand, but people don't know that before that was taken, they pulled out the champagne bottles and there's this photo of, you know, Goff swigging the champagne. And um, they had to and then passing it over to Vincent and they had to get special dispensation to bring alcohol into that community. It was a dry community, but the the elders in Dagaragu they were aware of the in white culture, that to celebrate, you often bring out champagne. So, you know, it's a bit of a cultural exchange. But, um, you know, they also knew that, you know, the symbolism that they really needed was the the paper, the white title deeds to their land. So when the, you know, government officials arrived, they were like, hey, we'll drink some champagne, but uh, can you please give us that bit of paper <laughs> with your signature on it?
0: Finally to you, Wendy... Does the connection between pubs and alcohol and politics and activism continue?
2: I think it's a little hard to give a definitive answer to that. But I think one thing that doesn't continue is that pub where you could go... Um, where you knew there would be people that you had things in common with. Maybe you didn't even know them very well, but you'd share values and you'd have plans and you'd be able to initiate new ideas and make new plans. That happened in pubs. I think today there are popular local pubs with bands. Uh, They're also, pubs are a big site for gambling. They're a big site for uh, watching sport, all of which makes a noise. I have, however, been to one small meeting planning a people's blockade of Newcastle Port, a couple of meetings in relation to that, specific pubs on a specific occasion, which means that I don't feel I can definitively stick by my earlier thought that the time at the pub is over and political organising, but it's not, it's definitely not what it was. And I think today maybe the cafe... I mean, we've got to think when the time when I was writing about the push, and even up to the late seventies, we didn't go to many cafes. And now the cafe, if you, yeah, you know, wherever you are, almost whether it's out in the country or you're in the city, wherever you are in Sydney, and the outer west or the inner west. There'll be a local cafe where you can go and make friends with your well, local cafe community.
0: or coffee shop, but I, I take your point. Look, thanks for sharing the first live program for uh, for the year with me. My guests have been Alex Etling, uh, co-editor of Knocking the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia. And uh, thanks to you and uh, journalist activist Wendy Bacon, for coming into the studio. Oh, the book can be ordered online at interventions.org.au and, uh, and, of course, at your local bookshop. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABCRN.